0: if your brother or sister sins go and point out their fault just between the two of you if they listen to you you have won them over but if they will not listen take two or three uh, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses if they still refuse to listen tell it to the church and if they refuse to listen even to the church treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector truly i tell you whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And I think. What becomes really clear in this passage very quickly is that even though this is the very beginnings of the church, this is just Jesus, and, and he's got his disciples gathered around them, and he's trying to teach them the way that church is going to be moving forwards. he's, he's given them a real, like, clear indication from the very start that he loves this thing. He, he is in love with the church. Even in its tiny, fledgling infant stage, he is like, guys, this is a really precious and important thing. Your relationships are really precious and important. It is so important that you keep each other right, that you look each other in the eye, that you don't let things go beyond little issues, that you don't let them grow into something terrible. He's like, look after each other. He wants them to be constantly united in pursuit of him and constantly united in their longing to see the kingdom come. And he knows that if they're divided and falling out and arguing and not getting on, that this whole thing will fall apart really quickly. Actually, the church only spreads around the world because of the unity of the brothers who were there at the start and Jesus knows this because he himself was tempted right at the start of his ministry he gets taken out into the desert and he's tempted by the devil so he knows what that voice in his ear sounds like tempting him to not follow not follow the Lord not follow in the footsteps of his father not go on the mission that he's been called to go on he knows what that little voice sounds like and he doesn't want the disciples to hear that voice that's like a crowbar and um, like wedged in between their relationships kind of prizing them apart and breaking up their unity and so he's like the very first thing he's like i love this thing and you need to protect it and i think the first thing that comes out in that passage is that there's there's this thing about taking action not being a passenger not being willing to stand on the sidelines but taking responsibility and taking action. As we go through that passage, he says, if that brother, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out, he says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church and then treat them like a pagan if they refuse to listen again. He's like, it's like a a tenacious, like, don't give up on this thing. Just do something at each stage. You've got to do something, involve people, go to them directly, bring other people into it. He's like, don't just stand and get annoyed and get bitter and get angrier and angrier about it. He's like, go and do something about it. If you've got an issue, go and sort that issue out. If you see somebody making a mistake or making bad choices, go and speak to them about it. Don't just let it fall apart. We cannot be hopeful bystanders, but we have to be active players. Our friends bought a flat a few years ago. Uh, And when they went to see it, they really loved it. They fell in love with it. They were like, This is the flat that we're going to have our family in. It's going to be, they could picture the rooms and their kids running around in the rooms. They were like really excited about it. And they moved in, and for a a little while, everything was great. And then they just started to notice like some little things that were wrong with it a few wobbly floorboards and some creaks. And actually, as they investigated, there was a little bit of dry rot that they found. And as they investigated further, it turned out the dry rot was in every bit of timber under the floor of their whole flat. So every beam, every floor floorboard everything was dry rot, so they had to take up every beam every floorboard every room at one point in their flat was it was a ground floor flat was just like a like a a basin of mud basically (laughs) and they had to replace every single bit of wood they had to put in all the beams again they had to put in all the joists again they had to put in all the flooring again and actually when it was finished it was amazing it was just like the most incredible job they did an amazing job of it and it was the flat that they hoped for it was brilliant but Somebody would have noticed three or four years back when it first started that, oh, that floorboard's got a little bit wobbly or, oh, there's a creek over there or something doesn't feel right about this. And instead, they just sort of powered on and made sure it was okay and then sold the flat and got rid of it. I think, actually, when it comes to right relationships, we can't be paper over the cracks kind of people. We can't be the kind of people who notice something small and let it lie. We can't be the kind of people who hope that it will get better by itself, but we have to be positive action people. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, go and point out, take, tell it to the church, treat them. They are all positive like actions that involves doing something and not standing and watching. His advice to us is to pursue restoration and healing in broken moments. And I love that advice. I love that right at the very beginning, Of the church right in the very like embers of that fire beginning to start jesus gives us a framework for uh, loving one another excellently and that's not just like a a a sort of mushy valentine's day sort of oh i love you so much that's a hey you've got some difficult stuff going on and i'm going to come and point it out to you but i'm also going to help you walk through it. it's a framework for keeping things right keeping things united The problem is that the world that we live in thrives on conflict. It thrives on fallouts. We watch television programs. You know, no soap opera in our world would be successful if everyone got on all the time. Can you imagine EastEnders? uh, If they all just came into the pub, had a nice night playing dominoes, everyone got on fine, and then they went home again and everyone was best pals, you would stop watching after a couple of days. You know, the reality TV programs, are so many reality TV programs that are based on the fact that they're hoping the contestants will fall out with each other in spectacular fashion because if they all just went and had a nice holiday for two weeks, it wouldn't be television worth watching. You know, we have an arms industry that thrives because the world is not good at solving its conflict in a peaceful way. Actually, social media often provides to be the perfect platform for airing hurtful and divisive opinions without really feeling the real impact of how they land with the people we're talking about. There's an unbelievable market for disagreement, dishonor, and relational disaster. But Jesus' words to his followers are, actively pursue resolution. So how does that translate for us today? How do we be active pursuers of resolution in a world that thrives on conflict and fallout well I think he lands it first with his followers because the church is the place that has to reflect that more than anywhere else in the world actually in this room on a Sunday morning us with each other just look at the person beside you and just say I am determined to do a good relationship with you look at them tell them look them in the eye I am determined to do good relationships with you Look the other way, tell the person on the other side as well, I am determined to do a good relationship with you. If we are Jesus followers and we aren't encouraging, and challenging one another well, if we aren't doing everything we can to maintain good relationships, if we aren't doing everything we can to to look after one another and to make sure that everyone is thriving, then the world has no chance because it has to spring out of this room. This is where we learn how to do it really well. And then we go from this place to take peace into the world. I think Jesus is calling us to be pioneers of peacemaking. Jesus is calling us to be pioneers of peacemaking, a people of action. And so it all starts with action. When we spot something going on with someone, when we felt hurt or let down, when someone has wronged us and it would be really easy to just bury our heads in the sand or cross our arms and furrow our brows and just stew on it, actually we make a choice not to do that. We pursue healing. We pursue restoration. We pursue reconciliation. When we see someone fall, we don't watch from a distance, but we pick them up and pursue restoration with the Father with them. And when we do that, instead of heaping misery in the moment and pouring fuel on the flames of uh, divisiveness, when we are kind with one another, when we challenge one another well, when we care for our relationships well, when we pursue reconciliation, it's like taking a big fire blanket and putting it on top of the flames and not letting them go anywhere. We first must take action. As we move through the passage, though, Jesus stresses Next, that our hearts have to be in the right place. As we go through the passage, there's no theme of judgment or embarrassment or celebrating the failures of others. He's really clear that when it comes to challenge and resolving conflict, it has to come from a good place. It has to come from a place of love and affection and care and kindness for the people that we're challenging and trying to maintain relationships with. You know, the, the relentlessness of how Jesus says we have to restore and reconcile those around us he says like he goes through those four different steps doesn't he? he's like go on your own and then if that doesn't work take one or two others and then if that doesn't work still go and tell the church and only at that point when it seems like you've done every single thing you can to to, uh, pursue reconciliation at that point you can say okay this obviously isn't working we must approach it in the right way and with a healthy heart I wonder how many is of Been in situations that we didn't approach with a healthy heart. Hands up if you think, if you can remember a time where you're like, I went into that with my heart not in a good place and it it didn't end well. For me, I have a really clear example. Uh, When you have your first child, it's a wonderful and incredible moment, and there's lots of lovely stuff that happens. And amongst that, you also encounter sleep deprivation like you will never have experienced in your life before. Uh, And from sleep deprivation, uh, it sort of awakes within you a Marvel esque supervillain called uh, Captain Selfish. Uh, And Captain Selfish comes out in really strongly manifested ways at really inopportune moments. So I can remember one time, uh, we were maybe three or four months into Evelyn being with us, uh, and we were deprived of sleep. The two of us were just so tired, and it was like three in the morning, and I found myself awake hearing her cry. We'd just put her down, we were trying to get her to settle, and I'm totting up a scoreboard in my head. I'm thinking, what are all the things that I've done today? And it surely has to be more than Sarah. So that the next time Evelyn cries, I can lay out a real clear plan as to why I am the one deserving of sleep. And I found myself going through all these tasks. I was like, oh, I did that. And I did the dishwasher. And then I did that. And so... Sure enough, Evelyn cried again, and I was like, love, I've done this today, and I've done this today, and I've done, I'm actually not sure what you've done today, to be honest. It seems like you've, you've maybe just fed Evelyn, and that's about it. I can tell you guys now, if you ever have children, that is the wrong thing to say to your wife at three o'clock in the morning. You see, when we come at challenge, when we come at conflict resolution with our hearts in the wrong place, with our own selfish motives at the forefront of it, with our own need for uh, position or power or to be seen as right, nobody wins. It happens quite a lot though, doesn't it? We do something just to prove a point or to show off or to get the better of someone or to increase our own stock. But in the area of challenging conflict resolution and bringing Peace and calm. The wrong heart can create really dangerous waters. When you come at it with a heart that's in the wrong place, it's like churning up the sea. And if you imagine you and the other person are on two boats, nobody wins when the sea is choppy. Nobody wins when there's massive waves crashing over. You want to do everything you can to calm the waters. The heart is a really vital tool in resolution and restoration. Jesus makes it really clear the whole way through this practical guide for maintaining good relationships and correcting one another well that the end game is the restoration of that person. It's like do everything you can to see that person restored rightly with the Father. Do everything you can to see this relationship restored well within the church. The relentless nature of this way of conflict resolution, of this way of challenging one another, it leaves no room for our own selfish motives and gains. So how do we go about doing that? How do we become restorers of relationships and reconcilers with the Father? Well, it would seem like we need to have our heart in the right place before we go interfering with the hearts of others. <laughs> in James chapter four, verse eight, it says this: draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you who are double-minded. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the need for our hearts to be pure and right before the Lord before we go charging into any sort of challenge or conflict resolution is really crucial. So how practically do we do that? How do we bring our hearts before the Lord to be purified and cleansed so that we can do this really well? I think a great model of it is the prayer that David cries out to the Lord. Uh, For those of you who don't know, David was a king uh, in the Old Testament and he did some really great stuff and he led uh, God's people uh, in some amazing victories. He also had some really rubbish moments where he made really bad decisions and he prays this prayer off the back of a really bad decision that he'd made uh, to pursue another man's wife. And he says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. If we are going to be pioneers of peace, then we have to be actively bringing our hearts before the Lord on a regular basis and saying, God, would you purify my heart? Would you take out of my heart any selfishness any uh, jealousy, any anger, any hurt, any bitterness, any resentment. And that's just before 10 o'clock in the morning most days for me. I don't know what it's like for you, but it's that constant bringing our hearts before the Lord and just allowing Him to work in them. I have this brilliant thing uh, that I discovered a few years ago. I call it the Healthy Heart Checklist. And each day as I go to my bed at night, I ask myself these questions. Uh, If you want a copy of these, I can send them to you afterwards. Just come and chat to me. But this is what I ask myself each night when I go to bed. Number one, is everything okay in your heart? Number two, am I mad at anyone today? Number three, am I waiting for someone to come and make things right with me? Number four, Have I had any extended imaginary conversations with anybody lately? You know those conversations where a work thing doesn't go quite the way you plan? You lie down in bed at night and you're stewing over it and think, if I'd only just said this, or if I'd only just did that, or if I'd only just, I would have won that argument. Number five, have anything come out of my mouth lately that I wish I could have taken back? Number six, have I secretly celebrated someone else's failure in the last day? Number seven, have I got any secrets that are eating at me? Number eight, is anything going on? I hope nobody will discover. Number nine, have I lied recently to someone I love? And I find that asking myself those questions on a daily basis have helped me to bring my heart before God each day and say, God, if there's anything that's come up in those questions, uh, then please, uh, would you help me fix that? Would you help purify my heart? Would you help bring it to a place where I can be an effective pioneer of your peace in every situation I'm in? So we act, we don't stand idly by, And it's crucial that we do it from a place of having a sweet heart. It's not just about our own personal gain or reward, but it's about seeing God's kingdom come in our life and the lives of those around us. And then finally, the passage ends with this really wonderful promise from Jesus that kind of knits the whole thing in together. Because actually, left on our own to resolve conflict and left on our own to challenge one another, we would be rubbish at it. We would be so bad. There would be relationship fallout left, right, and center. We'd steamroll it in sometimes where we weren't welcome or we wouldn't go in somewhere where we should have gone. But Jesus gives us this promise at the end. He says, again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. How incredible a promise is that? Where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. I think we've seen that recently within the life of our church, haven't we? When we gather together on a Sunday morning, the Lord is here with us. We've experienced his presence and his power. When we gather in our connect groups, We've seen the Lord with us when we hang out in ones and twos to mentor and disciple and encourage one another. The Lord is with us in those moments. His promise is his presence. What it also means though is that when two or three of us come together to resolve uh, relational issues or to challenge bad decisions, that the Lord is with us in that moment. That when we pursue reconciliation, it would be mad of us not to invite Jesus to be right at the center of it with us. And say, Jesus, would you come and bring the peace that only you can bring in this place? We are not alone in pursuing restoration and resolution. About a year ago, just after Caleb was born, at one of our first ventures out the house, we decided we'd go and get hot chocolates at the beach. So we all go down to the beach in the car, and it's like a really stormy day. So we get hot chocolates, and we're sitting watching the waves coming in. And it's like one of those really sweet moments where you're like, this is a fun moment. And Evelyn was like, can I come and sit in the front with you, Daddy, and pretend to drive the car? And I was like, of course you can. Come on in. So we're sitting there for maybe about half an hour or 45 minutes. And then uh, I'm like, right, let's get the kids in the back. So she jumps in the back, fasten her in, come around the front, turn the engine on. It's like, ch ch I was like, oh, no, I've only been here for 45 minutes turned out Evelyn had turned the lights on when she was pretending to drive the car, and I hadn't noticed she'd done it, and so we'd just been sitting there with the lights on for 45 minutes, and it killed the battery. Now, fortunately, we're members of the AA, so I just got my AA card out. I'm like, hey, Mr. AA man, could you come and fix my car? He's like, of course, I would love to do that. You're a valued customer. He's there in 45 minutes, charges us up, sends us on our way to go and get a new battery. It was wonderful. Now, can you imagine what madness would have ensued if, as an AA member, I would just said, you know what, I'm going to diss myself. I'm just going to fix this problem. There's a flat battery. So I'll go around the front of the car, open up the bonnet, unscrew all the battery, take the battery, walk two miles to Kitty Brewster Halfords. Be like, here's my battery. Uh, I need a fresh one. They'll give me a fresh one. Take it back. Walk all the way back to the car. I don't have any tools with me, so I put the battery back in the car and I sort of loosely screw it on and that there's sparks coming out of the engine, and I'm not sure which one goes on which one, what point you add it onto to which terminal, and so eventually, maybe about a week or so after I've replaced the battery, the whole thing explodes. Can you imagine what madness would that would be if I didn't make use of, of the thing that was the perfect thing in that moment, the AA man? When it comes to conflict resolution and challenge, is it not absolute madness if we don't invite Jesus to be right at the center of it with us? If when we have a disagreement or a fallout, if when we see somebody making a really bad decision, if we don't say, Jesus, would you come and be right in this moment with us as we try and figure this out and as we try and find a better way to do this? It would be madness, wouldn't it? Not inviting Jesus into the heart of these challenge and restoration moments is leaving the most important person out of the conversation. It's only when we partner with him to bring about challenge and relational reconstruction that we can see real and lasting change happen. It's only when he's in it that it can be done in love and with peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and a constant heart for the person who's sitting in front of us. To not have Jesus in the mix is like setting ourselves up right from the start to have the whole thing crumble around about us. See, Jesus knew that he was about to be killed when he's given this advice. He knew that he was not long uh, away from being killed and put in a tomb and resurrected and then going back to the father so he knows that this advice he's leaving with the disciples right now has to last them uh, for eternity until he comes again and he says this to them one of his other promises he says this if you love me and keep my commands i will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth The world cannot accept him because it neither sees or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. As Jesus' followers, we're promised his presence. That's his promise to us, that when we go in his name, his presence is with us. And so we invite him right into the heart of those conflict resolution moments. We invite him right into the heart of those moments where we feel let down or hurt or burned. We invite them right into the heart of those moments where we see our friends making bad decisions and we know that we have to go and have a conversation because it's the best thing we can do for them. And when we partner with Jesus to do that in kindness and love, amazing things can happen. We are called to be a united church, not a church that's in disagreement, not a church that falls out with one another, not a church that doesn't deal with issues, not a church that lets things slide for months and years and doesn't have a conversation about it. We're called to be united, reconciled with the Father, with our relationships that are in really healthy and good places. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. recognize that this subjective uh, challenge and restoring relationships may be a live issue for some of us in the room that we might have relationships that we know uh, are not in a great place or we might have just something that we know needs dealt with and sorted and so we'd love to make space if you're in that place where you're like actually need to pursue God uh, and and his reconciliation and, and resolution We'd love to make space to pray for you this morning. We'll make a space at the front here and you can come out and, and somebody from our church will pray for you. We'd love that. As I was preparing for this talk as well, I just felt like that, um, like having our hearts in a pure and good position was a really important word for us as a church. Uh, there's some really sweet things happening in the life of our church just now. We're growing. We're reaching more of the community than we've reached before. We're seeing people coming in from some of the different things we're doing, like mainly music and stuff like that. And we desperately want to remain a united uh, and a and, uh, Pursuing body of people who are pursuing the Lord, and so I just want to make space this morning. If you're like, I'm aware that as we were talking about the heart there, I just felt a few wee niggles or aches or strange. I'm like, I want to go and do some business with God. We'd love to pray for you as well. Um, and the final thing as well is just that um, passion uh, to act and to move. Like I was talking about it in the, in the context of relationships this morning. But if you're just feel like God's putting a fire under you, and you're like, I need to just. Go and this—I so. feel like he's given me something that I need to go and pursue or charge after. We'd love to pray with you this morning as well. So.